1: The New York Times, best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my friend Steve Campbell. Where we are kicking writing in the butt One word at a time.
0: And Taylor, today we're talking about VoucherCon. How was it?
1: I can't wait. Oh, <laughs> I, I got to see all the pictures people were posting on social media. And I'm sitting here going, grumble, grumble, grumble. And I'm determined I'm going to go next year. In the meantime, I have to live vicariously through you. So yeah, so yeah,
0: you're gonna you're gonna (laughs) go to San Diego, and I went to Minneapolis. So what what was it like from your perspective, looking at the pictures? Did it look like people had a good time?
1: Yes, but if you've been to as many of these things as I have, there's you you see more than just what's in the pictures. Like you're like you know who's hanging out with who, and Mm -hmm. like who's having fun, and you know it's just if somebody doesn't know people in the pictures and doesn't know anything about boucher conscious like oh look two people you know four people in a group having fun at a conference but if you've been there and you know them it's like there's a whole other story that goes with it in your head that's even deeper than just the picture right so yes it's it's Wonderful seeing all those faces and knowing who's there and interesting to see who didn't go. Like okay, I'm not the only one. And um, (laughs) there were a lot of
0: people that were supposed to be there that that weren't able to be there for whatever reason. Really? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, hopefully next year. Did it look like,
0: from my perspective, it was not as crowded as it was at Dallas three years ago? Did it seem that way from the pictures?
1: I didn't see like a lot of pictures of crowds. It was just, you know, people posting their own together oh, okay. with so and so like okay. You know, so if somebody had like, hey, here's a look at the bar, I would have been like, ah, yeah, that was a big one. Or yeah, the nah. bar was about
0: half the size of the bar in Dallas, maybe a third of the size. I
1: mean, and it was rare to find yeah, it's rare to find bars that big in these venues. That was kind yeah, of Yeah, that, that was fun. like a <laughs> basketball
0: court with a yeah. with a long bar. <laughs>
1: But you can tell from the groups of how many people are at the bar, how many people are in the audiences, those types of things of how big the con actually is that year. And I didn't, I couldn't tell because I didn't see any of those. I just saw a lot of friendly faces like, oh, I miss them.
0: Well, before we, before we get started, um, I I have to make a confession because Uh Julie... Normally listens to these shows, and I can't, so I can't tell you this in a little bit because she's out right now. And she normally listens while we're recording and hears everything I say, and then she'll ask me about it. But she was a nervous wreck, letting because I'm I'm so my mind is not often focused on what I'm doing. I'm thinking about other things, so she's always afraid that I'm going to do something ridiculous and stupid Uh, whatever we go anywhere so she likes to go with me to make sure that i can get from the airport to the hotel yeah
1: you don't forget a bag or you don't lose track of something yeah okay so
0: i have i told her that everything was great it couldn't have been any smoother i did not tell her that i locked myself out of the room once and left my cell phone at the bar one night
1: oh that's awesome I'm sure you got yourself back into the room and you got your phone. I'm I saying, did. Yeah, so okay. everything, and that's what I always tell her. It's
0: like, yeah, I do these things all the time, but it's always just fine.
1: Okay. I just have to say one time, because I, I get that way when I travel a lot too. And one time I was going between the United States and Canada, and I didn't know that where you checked in was not where you left your bags. And I left, oh. I just <laughs> walked away from my bags. and And then I was like, wait a minute and I'd go walk all the way back and get them so for anybody <laughs> and and the the poor check-in people were just looking at them like how do we get in contact do we call her back and I was like I'm here I'm here um yeah I've I've made so many and I've globe trotted by myself I've gone I've uh-huh. gone to Africa to the for, you know through the Middle East and you know and I've made so so anyway don't feel bad that's all I'm saying like and Julie- I don't think you could one-up me on that
0: Julie is the type who is so focused on not doing something like that that she misses everything that's happening around her. Oh, I managed to miss everything too. Thing over there. Oh, do you? Okay, well that's
1: good. (laughs) I'm just like my head in the clouds, I just cotton brains.
0: (laughs) All right. So what I what I thought we would do with this show is I went to a number of the sessions and I I really enjoyed doing that. And I have some observations, and I want to get your thoughts on some of these observations. So we'll just kind of work our way through things. Um, this first one is just a general observation um, that maybe you have some thoughts on, maybe you don't. But in all of the sessions that I went to, um, there was one where the audience was so incredibly engaged. They seemed to know every author extremely well. I don't mean personally, but they knew... They knew all the authors, they knew who the authors were, they knew the books, and they knew the characters. As the authors were talking about things, they're nodding and like softly applauding to themselves. Can you guess what kind of session that was? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was Coastal Cozy. So it was a cozy mystery thing. And okay. it's like the the readers of, of cozy mysteries must just love these characters in a way that it was it was really cool. It was fun to be there and just to see the delight on their faces as the authors were talking about the characters and talking about their books and their eyes would light up when they would talk about a character. They went into some detail about some of the secondary characters and what were their favorite secondary characters and things like that. It was really fun. It was just fun to see.
1: It sounds like, okay, I need to read some cozy mysteries. And um, not now, or maybe now on the show, I just need like, Two or three recommendations, not just for the stories and the characters, but strong writers, because I don't think I've ever really read A Cozy Mystery. And I'm like, if that's the kind of following that they're getting, then surely these must be enjoyable. And as long as they're not thrillers, I I just can't read thrillers. I, I live in that world all the time. It's not entertainment for me, but maybe Cozy Mysteries will do it. Well, so there, there are a lot of good
0: ones out there. I I do read them and enjoy them, um, but I'm not going to make any recommendations on the air. Okay, that's fair. So, all right. I went to a panel. It, this was actually one of the panels, one of the big panels in the big room with the big uh, with the big authors. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was the panel. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was on the importance of weather and climate sort of as a setting in your book. And I think the reason they did this panel, uh, Joe Nesbo was, was one of the, the lead guests that was there. And I can't remember the guy's name, something McCall Smith, who writes the Ladies' Detective Club.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm
0: probably totally butchering that. He's from England. Uh, Joe Nesbo's from Scandinavia. There was a Scottish, uh, Scottish writer, actually two Scottish writers, and they were hysterical. And someone from South Africa, so they they had hot climates, rainy climates, cold climates, and it was it was a fascinating uh, discussion. Um, and I, as a reader, I started when I really started getting into mysteries and thrillers. It was the Travis McGee series that was set in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and weather always played a huge part of those books. And it was always just the heat and the sun. And, you know, the nature of living in that heat that made me want to move to Florida. So <laughs> to me, weather is an important component of a book if it's if it really fits into the setting. And we've never talked about that. So I'm curious what your right. what your thoughts are.
1: Well, I 100 percent agree. Um, I, I don't think that I've ever like really consciously thought about it except for once and that was i can i can't really go into the details but it, it there was not a, a consistency in the the climate and and you noticed it <laughs> and i i was like yeah this matters but in my that's the first time i actually ever consciously went ooh this isn't this needs to be you know done differently than how the, how i'm seeing it right now but in my own work I have always seen weather as tactile. Like you know, we talk about we've talked about how showing what the characters see is important, but that it, the sight is the least. Like it's not where you get your um, the feeling or the 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 way something feels in an environment. It's not by describing what the character sees. It's how it's impacting them. And so it, that's where, ta- you know, bringing in the smells of things and the textures of things and the 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 way something feels tact- in tactile experience comes into play. And weather is a big part of that if you're in a situation where it's not just balmy San Diego. But, you know, even then, yes, because it affects how the weather, how, like, think about your your everyday life and how you go about things um, if it's going to be raining, you have to make sure that you know either you have an umbrella or you try not to get caught out in the middle of a storm. Or like in Florida, where it rains, like you can time your clock, but your watch by when when it starts raining in the evening. You're gonna your afternoon. You're gonna plan your yourself around that. And characters are no different. If if it's really cold then, you know, it's going to affect what a character can do in terms of agility because of how well they have to be bundled up. If they're going to have to be agile, then they need to take precautions that they have really good light clothing on that still somehow manages to retain warmth. If it's going to be really hot, then, you know, heat brings on exhaustion. You're going to want to avoid the hottest part of the day. And just saying stuff like that, like, you know, waited, the character waited uh and and because it was too hot out and they would go out to do this whatever that brings in a sense of realism and you know people talk about how oh in the informationist you know the setting was as much a character as you know any of the other characters well whatever maybe maybe not but if your setting is a character then it needs to have a personality <laughs> So that's that's part of the character's personality is the weather, and you know also the, cli- the the temperament of the people and how the city looks and feels or whatever. But if if the, you do want your locations to feel like a character, how could you not include weather? That's such like such an important part of it that I'm surprised this is the first time we're actually talking
0: about that. Now, another thing that we haven't talked about, and you alluded to it, um, is you mentioned the, the phrase tactile senses and, you know, the way you experience these different things. And there's, you know, smell, feel, the five senses, whatever they all are. And um, that was something that came up during this panel, the idea of incorporating those things regularly and and someone made the comment that you just you you really can't do it too much I I assume that there is a way of doing it too yeah, much but there is the more you do um, the richer maybe the, the the reading feeling is I don't know but that's another thing we haven't spent a lot of time talking at any time at all maybe talking about
1: it. yeah because there's there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it and maybe we can line that up for another show. Yeah, that would be an interesting show. There was one quote that
0: said you should sprinkle in the senses rather than shoveling them on.
1: Yeah, and but also with like, an
0: accent, so it sounded even better.
1: <laughs> but also like it's like any description, you don't just info dump the description. It has mm-hmm. to be part of character and motion. Then and, and so if you if you're going to be talking about the weather, you don't just say, "Oh, it was raining outside." Again, I mean, you could, but it has to be part of character and motion, not just the day was dark and gloomy and whatever, you know, that's the difference between if, if you do too much of just talking about weather, it's like talking about sandwiches and making coffee. It's, it's boring. It's uninteresting. It only really counts if you're integrating it into the characters movement and it it serves a purpose and then you can't so, do it too much.
0: One of the audience questions that came up in this panel was the idea of whether or not you need to be in an area to experience the setting versus uh just doing research and i know in the informationist you you were building on travel that you had already done and so you you had a a real sense of the area where a lot of the scenes were taking place and then in later books it's like you'd maybe been there but you did a lot of research online um, do you have a an opinion on because the the panel was split? It's like some people felt like yeah you could you can do this you just need to be accurate when you're doing your research, and uh, you know one other person felt like you really miss things if you don't spend at least some time where your setting is. So you've done it both ways. What what's your thinking?
1: As with everything, it depends. So <laughs> um, if it depends on what type of story you're writing. That's that's foundational, right? So you can have all this information and knowledge about a place, but if it doesn't fit your story, it doesn't belong in the story. It doesn't matter. So the there are some, like the stories that I write, they move so quickly. There's just not a lot of room for talking about how something feels or looks or whatever. So even if I did travel to a place and knew everything there was to know about it, it, there's less of a chance that it would even make its way into the story. However, that said, you're always going to get a richer, not just richer texture from having experienced it, but richer ideas of how the story itself interplays with the location because you've been there. It's it's not a gray slate in your head. Uh, that's why getting out and about and being around people and traveling uh it's an idea generator not just like story ideas like the big idea but how different parts of the story fit together connect uh it 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 helps take your your chain links to be more intricate in how those links interconnect when you've actually experienced a place but it- go ahead it's Let's say, for example, I wanted to write about a place that I had not been before. My first thing, if I'm trying to conjure up that texture, is not to go online and start looking for things or researching things. My first thing is, where have I been already that is as similar in climate as Mm. that place is? And then... Start there is my starting point and try and figure out what similarities and then still continue to draw off personal experience, but not in a hyper like personalized way to that location, more like in the sense. So I let's say I had never been to Florida and never experienced one of those downpours that happen, you know, four o'clock, here comes the rain but I had been in Equatorial Guinea where it's hot and humid and muggy and when it rains, it's just torrential. So not the same exactly, but I know how the air smells when it gets wet. And I know how the skin feels when it's humid and there's no way to escape it. And you're just there with the water just pooling on your skin, even though you're not out in the rain. I know what it smells like when rain hits cobblestones and concrete. Those types of things can be utilized even if you've never actually been to that exact location because you have found a comparison. Alternatively, if you've never been to a place that has that type of environment, but you've been in the opposite, let's say you've spent a lot of time in the desert and you're writing about a place that is wet and humid. Well, instead of writing about that, <clears throat> excuse me, you write about the contrasts, <clears throat> where you're used to it being a certain way, and now it is not that way, and how it's a, a mind shift to you know you're used to there never being rain, and now all of a sudden it's raining, and you're forced to wait for the skies to clear. That's new. It's different. Anybody who's been in the rainy environment automatically is going to know what you're talking about but you've never actually described anything you're you're describing it in Mm -hmm. relation to the desert and then anybody who's been in the desert is going to go know exactly what you're talking about the desert and if they've been in both places they'll get both and if they haven't been in both places it doesn't matter because they're going to be able to relate to it from having been in the desert so sometimes you can write about a place not speaking about the place itself in detail so much as the experience of not being in that place is spoken of in detail.
0: Interesting. All right, good. All right, there was a panel on legal thrillers and there were okay. a couple of uh, couple of interesting things that I that I took from that. One of one of these this is an example of something that we've talked about before but it's a really specific example for a courtroom setting. And one of one of the one of the authors was talking about a scene where she needed the witness or a she needed a certain person to be in the courtroom while someone else was was being cross examined. And this person was also a witness. And of course, witnesses can't be in the courtroom when other people are being cross examined. But she needed it. So she was trying to come up with a way of doing it. And her way of doing it was. I think it was not to be disparaging to Texas, but I think it was in Texas and there was just like a crazy judge. And so she set this crazy judge up ahead of time that the crazy judge just he didn't care about the rules. He wanted to run his court the way he ran his court. And so that's the way she was able to make this happen. And I know that we've talked in the past about situations where if you need to have some illogical thing happen, if you set it up ahead of time, you can pull it off. And this seemed like a good example of that.
1: Yeah, that is a good example. And again, the adage is it just needs to be plausible. And what you're doing is you're removing the obstacles for somebody who is also an expert in that area to go, that's impossible. That never would have happened. Um, And, and, you know, Kate, important thing to note is this person actually knew what they were talking about and set up the scene to work in that way. Where and that is the danger of not knowing what you're talking about because if you're relying on like Law and Order or some other, you know, TV show to show you how things work, then it, it, you have no credibility. <laughs> you you can you cannot do it. So so that that's two points in one. Bingo. Yes.
0: <laughs> there was, uh, I no this this was just a discussion point. It didn't come up as a question from the audience, but they were. Th- this group of, they were all attorneys. They're they, they were all former attorneys, or actually uh, one or two of them was still practicing. But they talked about how hard it was to pare down their writing because when writing legal briefs, you needed to pile detail on top of detail on top of detail. And one of them said, imagine writing for a 12-year-old. Imagine the judge who's going to be reading this is a 12-year-old, and then they went off and talked about how, for most of them, how challenging it was when they they do their first drafts, and they'd be like 150,000 words, and, you know, they pull all this stuff out, uh, but just kind of paring it down to get just to the story, which we've talked about before, the idea of just leaving in the important stuff, and later, when they when we reached the, uh, the question and answer part, there was a the hand that went up on the right side of this very large room, and is it your uh, hand? no, no, it was not my hand. Um, <laughs> and the, they uh, pointed to this person, and he said, "I'm one of those twelve year olds. I'm a federal court judge."
1: Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it was hysterical <laughs> that is awesome. and um, And he did not, not disagree
0: with them. he He basically did agree with them. And then he had a question about something
1: else we you know, we've talked about how poorly most people communicate in writing. That was a, a Episode that we did some time back. And so I think we all are going to have our areas where we're, I think it's especially true when you're knowledgeable about something and you are an expert in an area to pare it down enough so that, look, that your audience has exactly what they need and not, not more. But sometimes that's difficult because what they need is based off other knowledge that is required as a foundation for what they need to know there and being able to, I think the, the more highly technical or skilled that knowledge is, the more difficult it is to be able to do that because you understand all the intricacies and you understand how important all of this is to the story and figuring out what part of it can be sacrificed for the sake of the audience That's really challenging. I think the closest I ever got to that myself personally was when writing about Equatorial Guinea, not turning it into a travelogue, cutting Mm -hmm. down everything to where it only what was necessary for the plot and the story was there in the story because there's just so much that you could write about and talk about and that is not just interesting but foundational to why things are the way that they are in this little world that you're creating, writing about um so i think yeah that's important yes and difficult and that but i think that we're all going to have that as authors not just those in the legal profession just anyone who knows stuff is going to struggle to pare it down for the sake of the audience especially if you're someone for whom accuracy and nuance matters. And I think the lawyers are at the extreme end of that. But yeah, it, it good, good information from them, for sure.
0: So there was also a panel on domestic suspense. And I went to this panel for a couple of reasons. One, it looked interesting. And two, I had no idea what domestic suspense was. And I was anxious to find out. Do you know what domestic oh, suspense no, I, is?
1: No, I no, I mean I would think that it's sort of like Gone Girl where you you're dealing with family type situations, maybe there's domestic abuse situation or something along those lines. I would guess that's what domestic suspense is, but I really don't
0: know. Well, I can tell you that I I have the same answer that the that the the moderator and the five authors had at the end of the panel. Um I I had that same knowledge which that no one really understands what it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a feeling. You know it when you feel it.
0: Yes. Um there was one person who said, "I didn't know what domestic suspense was, but they chose me for this panel, so it must be what I write." And she That's writes awesome. she writes some sort of cozy stuff. It was it was interesting the makeup of of the panel. One was a um one was chosen because she worked on a graphic novel. So she, as she just kept saying, I write comic books. I don't have a clue what any of this stuff is. I mean, that happens funny.
1: sometimes. It happens some, It's really, really, really hard on the back end to, you've got just hundreds and hundreds of authors. And you've got these panels and you're trying to figure out who's a good fit. And it fits their schedule. And there's no conflicts with something else they've got going on. And there's no bad blood between those authors. It's just a nightmare. So it does sometimes happen that authors get put on panels they have no business being on. It's happened to me before. Um, And, you know, you're just a good sport about it. And you do the best you can to contribute from your non uh, appropriate point not appropriate but whatever that word is uh point of view and uh, you know that is what it is but it's hilarious when you have a panel that nobody really knows what and it's
0: it, it was it was i i think they knew that just there was not a a clearly defined um a clearly defined definition the best one that came up was and i wish i could remember the name of the author's name she said the monster is in the house basically
1: yeah, that's, that's, that's a real that, that, and that was really that was a really yeah. clever
0: way of putting it and when i when i say that you know the that it was an odd mix of people this was my favorite panel for the whole show it was so funny and they played off each other so well it was just brilliant
1: oh and that's making me happy
0: the the author the author who wrote cozies she at, at one point near the end um i i can't remember what the question was but she she was basically saying you know i I, this is what I write. And I don't think this is domestic expense or suspense, unless you really love domestic suspense and then buy my book because you're going to
1: love it. That's hilarious. Oh my God. I love that so much.
0: Yeah, it was, it was very funny. Um, one other thing that came up during that panel, and this was, uh, one of the Scottish authors that were there, that was, that was there. Well, yeah, there were several of them. So we're there, but this one was there, and. She speaks really quickly and it, it's hard to interpret what she's saying. So it, it's like, I'm always like a beat behind in everything, but somehow the idea of the ambiguous ending came up and she she just threw up her hands and said, I wrote an ambiguous ending one time. I thought it was brilliant. Some of the readers didn't like it. And then that generated some discussion for a while the general consensus seemed to be that it wasn't a good idea to to write an ambiguous ending. And then the moderator said, would you do it again? And she says, no, I don't have the constitution for that.
1: (laughs) I don't know that I necessarily agree that it's a bad idea to leave an ending ambiguous. I think it's what type of ambiguity you're talking about. For example, when the mask closes out, which is the last, published Vanessa Michael Monroe story we don't know what happens to Monroe after that exactly we don't know if she gets back with Bradford again we don't really know and it's left open-ended but that's the only thing that's left open-ended all the rest of it's tied off closed and there's no and big ambiguity about what happened to all the key characters or the bad guys, quote-unquote bad guys, because, you know, um, we're not, we don't live in a black and white world. Um, but so if if any of the key aspects of the story had been left ambiguous, I would say absolutely not. That is a bad idea. But the emotional part of it and the character arc part of it to leave that ambiguous, I don't really think there's a lot of danger in that. All that does is set up for curiosity of what if if people enjoy following the character and, and want to more stories of where does this go next? Ambiguity that you know, where someone just drops the story right there on the idea that there's going to be a sequel that follows it. I've ha- I've read books that I was really into and then that happened and I kept reading the series and it got to the point where I was like, I'm never reading another book by this author again. I do not like being strung along and that's what they're doing to me. So if that's the type of ambiguity we're talking about, don't.
0: Do <laughs> Did you get any pushback sorry, sorry. from the ending of, of that book?
1: Uh, Just people asking me what does she find? Do they get back together? I really want to know what happens, you know, that type of stuff. But no, no anger or unhappiness. It's one of my highest rated books, believe it or not. Um, So, no, I did not get any pushback from that at all. Just curiosity.
0: I remember, it's been a while since I've read it, but I remember getting to the end and kind of going, oh, I guess the ending is whatever I want it to be. And so I picked <laughs> the ending exactly that I wanted right. and, and let it go. That's
1: but, right. And it's because I never know if there's going to be another book. And mm-hmm. at that point, that was a wise decision because that's when the publisher decided to discontinue the series. And so if I had, but but I had intended to write another book and, and I have been writing that other book. And what I was also doing to myself as an author was giving myself the flexibility to decide how much time would have passed between when the next book started, um, to leave some pieces of their history in a gray zone, so that if I needed to fill that in at another time, I could. But if I didn't, it wouldn't be the end of the world. And it 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 left, The Monroe in a state of, I'm not finished. I'm walking away right now, but this isn't the end. So what that end is, well, if there was never another book, readers could do exactly what you did and just make up their own.
0: All right, two other things, and then we'll uh, wrap things up. There was a panel on sleuths of all ages, and... The moderator for that was Aline Cogdall, who's a um, a yeah, reviewer of, of mysteries and thrillers. And I really like Aline. Uh, but she she said originally it was it was going to be something a little bit different. But because of the nature of the panel, they they sort of changed it. It was going to be originally like older, older sluice. Um, but they did it sluice of all ages. And the thing that I found most interesting about it was one author who was younger, um, gave her reasons for choosing a 25 year old sleuth and her reason was that at that age you feel like you're free from trouble it's like sure i'll go chasing after that killer what's the worst that could happen
1: yeah you're still in the invincible that, yeah. that you know as a teenager you you have this sense of invincibility you don't really think through the consequences of your actions but you're still as a teenager too young until you turn 18 anyway, to to do a lot of the stuff that a slightly older character could do. But as you get into your early 20s, you haven't entirely lost that sense of invincibility, but you got a little bit more wisdom under your belt, a little bit more experience. I can totally see where she's coming from with that.
0: Yeah, and I... So th- that that just kind of brought up the idea of selecting the age of your protagonist, and that was something that was also a theme of... This particular panel, uh, for some of the authors had really long-running series, and just the aging of the characters where they would try and age the character slowly,
1: yeah, but, you know the there were boat. also
0: pets and parents and all this stuff. and it's just how much confusion that caused, and they all wished that they had chosen a different path, like early on, of either like a younger protagonist or younger parents or no dog or. You know, just different things like that. I thought it was interesting. So you're yeah, in the same You're in the same
1: boat. Well, I'm in the same boat with trying to to slow Monroe's aging because so I do tend to put time frames between the books. So even if if it took me six years to get between that's the mask unbelievable.
0: And... That couldn't possibly happen.
1: <laughs> I think it might be longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> to get from the mask to the fulcrum, it's only been seven months inside this story chronology and that's a way to keep the characters younger and the this is something that I am actually playing with in my head is I'm it irritates me to no end that there's an expiration date especially on female characters that once they get to be a it's already hard enough to get an audience to take what that is the expiration experience.
0: date i want to know i
1: i'd say probably about mid 40s to early 50s like i think i'm pushing the envelope with claire and jack and jill she's 53 years old when the liars books start um to, it's because of the the strength and the agility that's necessary like a guy um even though a man of that age is also going to start, his body's going to start feeling the wear and tear. It's just automatically ingrained in our mentality that men can do things that women can't do. And so um, there's, I've seen, I think Robert Forsyth wrote a book where one of his characters was already like almost into his seventies and he's still doing all the things that he used to do, but there's no real discussion about how hard it is on his body or any of that. And it it was really hard to take that story seriously. And so I've always been mindful of that. And especially with Monroe that, you know, I've never actually said how old she is. You can sort of kind of do the math. If you know that she left Africa when she was 17, which a lot of people get wrong. I'm okay with that. Um, And that, you know, the story of the Informationist opens nine years later from when she left Africa. So she could either be, depending on w- how much into 17 and how much into nine years later, she could be in a range from you know 25 to 27, maybe, or maybe 25, 26. But I've never said how old she is. And it's specifically for that reason of trying of trying to avoid aging her, keeping her ageless, and and then keeping the timeframe specified between books so that. Even if it's taken, you know, by the time I'm finished 15 years to to write the Monroe stories, in her life, it might have only been four. So but she doesn't have dogs. <laughs> she has friends <laughs> and, and and that's it. And and so, but I'm but I'm mindful of that now and and also really looking for. I want to find a way that there is no, to to go beyond the expiration date of characters who maybe at one point were really physical and aren't able to keep up with the physicality itself anymore. But mentally, they have that much more experience under their belt. And so they become smarter about how to deal with scenarios and situations. And you move from the, you know, I'm going to slit your throat kick ass, shoot you from, you know, however far away to how can I play these people against each other so that I'm not physically present? But if I need to defend myself at some point, I will have the tools to do it because I thought about it ahead of time. So that that expi- that expiration date lasts and the character can keep going all the way into their 70s and never lose their stride because we shift from the physicality over you know, slowly over time into the intellectuality of it, the brains versus brawn. And I don't have a story to do that with yet, but I do have characters that have the potential to live very, very long lives, but I'm still motivated to keep that aging as slow as possible so that I can do the shift gradually over time and still have as many stories as possible before the series just has burned itself out.
0: All right, one last thing. And this was from an art panel. And there were a lot of interesting things that came up during the art panel, but there was one woman who had written a story that took place, I'll, I'll get the time frame wrong, but let's say it was the 1600s or something like that. Maybe the 1700s or 1800s, whatever. It, it's, but it's hard to find information about that time. And she used it was about an art theft back then well it was not about an art theft it was about this person who was using art to accomplish something but she had there was no there was no sense that she had there were no pictures that you could look at to see what people wore what they looked like um you know how they comported themselves so she went to artwork she was a connoisseur of art, she she worked in the art world, so she just traveled around and and found paintings from that era in that location, and not only found what people were wearing and you know what the well dressed people were wearing and what what the less well dressed people were wearing, she also found events that were depicted in pictures that she was able to use in the book, and I thought it was fascinating the idea of using uh, two, three, four hundred year old art as as research for your books
1: i think so too i don't see it so much as fascinating as there's someone who truly understands how to understand people like i mean granted if you looked at some of our artwork today you'd go Wow, those people were insane. And then you realize, oh, those are memes or whatever. So <laughs> I think there there might be a little bit of leeway there and what's actually being depicted in the art, but yes. you can still learn, you can still learn a lot from it. Mm-hmm. And like I don't look at that decision as oh, that's genius. I'm like, of course. What else would you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, that is a woman who understands story.
0: All right, so that is it for my VoucherCon wrap-up. Do you have any questions about anything else,
1: Taylor? Um, did you meet anybody new that you were like super happy or did you have your good breakfast with all I the high energized did... people? And No,
0: I did not. The breakfast situation was awkward. We'll put it that way. Um, they didn't start serving breakfast until what in my mind was pretty late. And, uh, but I did, well, meet what this, in your
1: mind is pretty late,
0: seven o'clock.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we live in
0: two totally different worlds. Yes, yes we do.
1: Continue.
0: But I did meet this wonderful woman who, uh, was, an was also an early bird the way I was. And so we would meet every morning at the closed bar and we'd bring coffee down from our respective rooms. And chat for a little bit, and work, and wait for the Starbucks to open, which didn't open, believe it or not, until six thirty. Which is, that's oh sad. the it's horrors! Just, it's just, just sad. <laughs> <laughs> and then our little our little crowd grew over the course of the of the weekend as people realized that there were people sitting at the bar drinking coffee. So that that grew over the course of the weekend. But I wasn't able oh, to do the whole it. breakfast thing that I that I like doing, and there was no way to like pull tables together and things. It was just like, eh, all right.
1: Well, there's always San Diego next year, I guess.
0: There is always San Diego. There will always be San Diego. And I
1: even know that reference.
0: (laughs) I don't. It's from.
1: We'll always have Paris. Oh yes, um... yes,
0: okay, (laughs) yes. Casablanca.
1: Yes. (laughs) All right.
0: So that that is uh, our show for this week. We'll be back with you again next week. Thank you guys for listening.
1: Thanks for being here, guys, and we will see you next week.